Well, welcome to First Methodist Mansfield. My name is David, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I especially want to welcome you if you're a first-time guest in any of our worship venues this weekend. We're delighted to have you today. If you have any questions about the life of our church, if we can help you out in any way, we'd love for you to stop by one of the connecting points uh, after the service. Uh, today, we are finishing a, a very long series, eight-week series uh, that we have been in called Saved. Uh, over the course of these many weeks, we have been looking at the book of Romans, chapter 12. We've been looking at what Paul says about what it means to be a follower of Jesus uh, from that particular chapter of the Bible. And if you have been here in any of the preceding weeks, any of the seven weeks leading up to this series, I hope that this, uh, that this series has been a blessing to you. I hope that there has been something that you have heard that has helped you think about your life and what it might mean for your life to live as a follower of Jesus in a new way. And that that new way of thinking may have inspired you, may have created some momentum in your life to continue on your own journey of growing as a disciple of Jesus. And, and here's why I hope for that, and here's why I pray for that, because while I believe that following Jesus is the best way to live. Like at the end of the day, when I look at the teachings of Jesus and how he describes what, how we're supposed to live our life, I'm just convinced that that's the best way to live, that that's the way to live where at the end of your days, you can lay your head down and say, okay, I did that well. I did the best that I could. While I believe that, I don't think it's the easiest way to live. I don't think it's the easiest way to live. And it would be disingenuous for me to say that to you. I mean, look at the life of Jesus. It didn't end in a coronation. It ended in a crucifixion. It ended in his own rejection, uh, his own violent death. And it was Jesus himself who said, whoever wants to follow me, if that's what your desire is, if that's what your life is, then you're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me that way, because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so over the course of this series, we've talked about the first steps. Last week, we started moving into the next steps, and we talked about that at some point, you have to make a decision. Are you serious about this? Do you, do you really want to be a follower of Jesus? Because while it's the a best way to live, it is not the easiest way to live, and we're going to see that again today as we look at the last eight verses of Romans 12 and the challenging instructions that Paul offers there of how we are to live in the face of the reality of the world in which we live. So I want to set up for you, before I read you those eight verses, I want to give you a frame of reference, a way to think about what Paul is going to instruct us here and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so I want to tell you just a quick story uh, from my own life. So this last week, I was visiting with a member of our staff who just moved her daughter into her new town home uh, that she's going to be living in during her second year of college. So she's a sophomore. She moved her into this really, really nice town home. She was pointing out to me the new wood floors and the granite countertops in this really nice townhouse. And she was commenting to me that housing situations during the college years have changed dramatically since she went to college. Very, very different. And we kind of laughed about that. I said the same thing. You know, when I was in college, when I was in that period of my life, I was dirt poor, like really, really dirt poor. I lived in some places that I would not want to show you. I mean, they were bad. They were ugly. There was five guys in one house, little bitty bathroom, you know, just, just nasty, nasty living conditions. And it was often the case that at the end of the month, 
there wasn't hardly any money left or there was a few dollars left in the account and you were, you were looking through the pantry and trying to figure out what in the world you were going to eat and maybe this could go with this. I don't know. I'll give it a shot. You know, I mean, that you, you may have lived through that, that season in your own life. I had no money in college. But during that time over the course of a year, I did, because of some real discipline and real intentional decisions, I was able, with that meager salary I got, the job that I worked, to, to put myself through school, to, to take care of rent and eating and those very important things, I did save up enough money to buy myself a bike. And, and I did that. I went through a year, again, of making hard decisions about that because I, just, I was convinced that if I had a bike, my life would be easier. Life would be easier. It would be easier to get to class. It would be easier to get from class to the, to the job that I was, that I was working. I just, and so I, I, over the course of a year, again, I made very intentional decisions. So, no, I'm not going to spend this dollar. I'm going to set that dollar aside so that at the end of that time period, I could, I could buy myself that, that bike that I wanted. And amazingly, at the end of that year, when I bought the bike, I was, I was right. Like, it really was a great, great thing for me in my life. It helped me get to class and get to the job. And, and because I'd spent a year not, making, not, not spending money on other things, but setting that money aside for this bike, I took great care of, of this bike. I mean, it was my pride and joy, this, this bike that I had saved for so long. To, to, to buy for myself, to, to create this convenience in my life, this, this, this value in my life. And it was wonderful until one day I left that job and the bike was gone. Someone had stolen my bike. And I remember just this feeling of hopelessness. I mean, just feeling like someone had come and kicked me in the gut and taken something that had belonged to me, something that I'd cared for, that I had saved for. I made all these decisions this, this entire time to make sure that I could afford this thing. And someone, just because they wanted to, took it from me. And I remember calling the police and reporting that someone had stolen my bike and the officer was really kind and generous and saying to me, don't get your hopes up. We're not going to find your bike. <laughs> this stuff happens all the time around college campuses. It's, it's, you're prob we're probably not going to be able to find this bike. And I remember just feeling wrong. Like, this is wrong. Someone took something from me that I had worked for, that I had sweated for, that I had invested in, and, and, and there was nothing that I could do about it. Just a hopeless feeling, that, that feeling of getting kicked in the gut, something taken, and, and, and you're left with nothing. And no one, mom and dad are not going to swoop in and fix it. And there's no one who's just going to say, oh, it's okay, you know, I'll take care of it. It was hopeless. It's happened. It's wrong. And there's nothing you can do about it. Do you remember the first time that you went through an experience like that? First time you walked through a moment, maybe it was like that, someone took something from you or someone who you thought you could trust, who someone who was a good friend suddenly turned on you. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember that feeling in the pit of your stomach, that anger and that rage and that hopelessness, that, that frustration that no one's going to fix this and this isn't going to get better for, for quite some time? We all have a story like that. And I share that story with you to highlight that things like that happen in our world every single day. Every single day. There are things that happen that we look at, whether it's something that's happened to us or someone that we care about or just something that we see happening on the other side of the world. We think, you know what? That's wrong. That's just wrong. That should not happen. That is evil at work in our world. 
And we're often left with this question. At the end of the day, when it's happened and, and, the, and the solution is sometimes beyond the scope of our own power or control, we're left with this question. How do you respond to that? Like, what do you do with that? What do you do with the, the feelings that are stirred up in your life, the anger, the bitterness, the rage, whatever it might be? What do you do with that? How do you respond to that? Well, here's what, here's what Paul says. At the end of Romans 12, after walking through all of these different things that we've talked about, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, this is what he says. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he is thirsty, then give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you, it's, it's an observation that I think is, there's a subtle thing happening in the text that I don't want you to miss. It's really, really important. And that is that God is not unaware of the reality of the world in which we live. God is not unaware. So, so being a follower of Jesus does not mean living with your, your head up in the clouds, not really aware of the suffering and, and the hurt that's going on with the world. It's not putting a smile on your face and pretending like everything is always okay. Hey, I, it's all great with me. Rather, what the scripture says and what it assumes is that there are things that happen in our world every single day that are wrong, that persecution is real. It's not just something that happens somewhere else or some other time in, in history, that it is real, that mourning and grief is not something that happens to other people, but it is a reality of our, all of our experiences in life. It's, it's the world in which we live. There is mourning and there is pain and there is suffering. That, that this idea of living at peace with others is not easy. Sometimes people don't cooperate with us. That there is this temptation to repay evil for evil, that there are people in our world who lack food and drink and the necessary things that we need to sustain life. And then in verse 21, this is so, so important, that there is this temptation for people who do everything else right, who live out everything that we've talked about for the last seven weeks, who, who, who give their, themselves to God as a living sacrifice, who, who change the patterns of their thoughts to live in, in connection with God's heart and God's character, people who live love with sincerity, who find a place to serve, who recognize their life is not about themselves, it's about something that is bigger than them. They do all of those things, but at the end of the day, for those people who do everything else right, there is still the temptation to be overcome by evil and to be disillusioned by the suffering and pain of the world. Even for the most deeply devoted follower of Jesus, there are moments in life where we just say, is this making any difference at all? 
Is this making any difference at all? Because I'm working for good. I'm living for good. I'm responding in love. And yet there is still the presence of evil and we all face the temptation to be overcome by it. Paul says, but don't give in. Don't give in. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, why is that so important? Well, remember that we talked about several weeks ago, we went back to Genesis 1, and we talked about what the scriptures teach us about us, about who we are. And, and throughout the series, I've shared this, this phrase with you over and over again, that all of us are people who are created with an immense capacity for good and an unhealthy tendency towards things that undermine that good, right? Talked about that over and over again. We have this immense capacity, which we said grows out of the truth in Genesis 1:27 that we are created in the image of God. That's what's different about you. That's what separates you from all other creation. Everything else that God has brought into being is that you have been created in the image of God. There is a part of God's heart and God's character, the DNA of who God is that lives in you. It's there. We may not see it we may not sense it we may be disconnected from it but it is there in some form in your life you were created with an immense capacity for good when people look at you you were created in such a way that they should see God that's what it means to live as God wants you to live is to live in such a way that when people see you they see God they see a reflection of God's heart and God's character and that within itself brings joy to God uh, when we had our first child, we were living in Cleburne, Texas. I was the youth pastor in First United Methodist Church in Cleburne, Texas, a real small town doing youth ministry in a, in a community like Cleburne was a ton of fun because everyone in the town just loves students. There's one high school. It's, it's easy to corral them all. And I loved, loved living in that community. And I had the joy of connecting with other youth pastors in that community. One of the guys who was a good friend of mine was the youth pastor at the, Bible, at the Baptist Church and over the course of that, that time, when we were expecting our first child, he and his wife were expecting their first child as well. They were about, a, about two or three weeks apart. And so we got to walk that journey together of waiting for the birth of, for me, my daughter, and for, for him, the birth of his son. But after, after the babies came, we really didn't see each other that much. We were a little busy. You know, we were making sure our wives were okay, overwhelmed, wondering what in the world we got ourselves into, you know. Um, and, and so it was several months before I got to see him and to meet his son for the first time but but one day after church we both ended up at the mexican restaurant because in cleburne texas there's not many options for mexican food on sunday afternoon so we ran into one another and i walked up and he had his carrier and i had my carrier you know our arms are like this at that point a couple months into it carrying that that baby in the uh, uh, in the car seat carrier and i looked at his son and he looked at my daughter and before he could say anything i said man i cannot believe how much your son looks like you. I mean, it's, it's a mini version of you right there. That's amazing. He looks just like you. And I was real surprised that he responded by saying, I was about to say the exact same thing. Your daughter looks just like you. It's, it's amazing. And it was interesting to us that neither one of us could see that for ourselves. But, but when someone else said it, oh, man, talk about warming a dad's heart. First few months, still trying to figure out what in the world we're doing. But to hear someone else say, I see something of you in this child. I see you in this new life. 
that just warmed my heart. That melted my heart to think that, that it, within this, this, this new life, there was, there was a part of me. Do you know that same feeling that you may feel about your own children when you see them doing something good? Something you want them to do, you see a part of yourself, a good part of yourself living out of that. That's the same way God feels. When you are living in such a way that people see him, can see his creativity and see his love and his grace that he has poured into you. Now, what does that mean? That means that you are never more like Jesus than when you treat someone better than they deserve. You are never more like Jesus than when you treat someone better than they deserve. You are never more like Jesus than when you forgive someone who may not feel any sorrow for the wrong that they have done to you. You are never more like Jesus than when you refuse to act in anger, bitterness, or revenge, and instead do all in your power to live at peace with others. You are never more like Jesus than when you seek out restoration to those whom you may have harmed as far as it is within your capacity, your power, and your control. You are never more like Jesus than when you turn away from using words or engaging in conversation, though we are tempted to do it, that undermine, demean, belittle, or minimize another person. And the reality that we all know is that we are surrounded by conversations like that every single day. You are never more like Jesus when you say, I'm not playing that game. I'm not engaging in that behavior. You are never more like Jesus than when you seek to overcome evil with good and you leave the outcome of that into God's hands, trusting you've done all that you can that's within your power and your control. It is not an easy way to live. And it would be disingenuous for me to say that it is. It is not an easy way to live. But we believe that it is the best way to live. Because the anger and bitterness and rage and thirst for revenge, that, that, that thing that may be present in your life right now, or there may be remnants of it that are, that are still there from a situation that happened a long time ago, Here's the truth. That has the power to consume you, to overwhelm you, and to undermine everything that we've talked about for seven weeks. To undermine all the progress and all the growth that you make in, in your life of faith. It has the power to overcome you, for you to look at it, to embrace it, and to live in such a way where you would just say, I'm, I'm done. I'm disillusioned. This isn't working. I don't want to do it anymore. And so for the sake of your soul, for the sake of your soul, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. There was a book that I read this summer that I really enjoyed uh, by John Ortberg. You may have heard that name. John is a pastor in California. He's written several books. Uh, every book of his that I've read, I've really enjoyed. Uh, every once in a while, I think you stumble across an author who just speaks your language. And so when you read their books, you just feel like you're talking to them. They're such a, a blessing to you. And John's recent book is called Soul Keeping. It's about how we tend and nurture our soul, how we walk through this path of, of growing as a disciple of Jesus, but along the way, take care of the, the heart that lives within us, the soul that lives into eternity. 
The book is John's tribute to a dear friend of his, a, a man by the name of Dallas Willard, also an author, a philosophy professor who recently passed away. Dallas was a mentor to John, and, and that was part of what Dallas's life was about. He was a teacher, he was an author, and he loved mentoring uh, young pastors. And John was one of those who was privileged to, to work with Dallas, to have a mentor like Dallas. And, and John talks about everything that he learned from Dallas over the course of the many years of their relationship, about what it means to bless and what it means to, to walk away from that temptation to curse, what it means to live in harmony and what it means to, to tend to and care for the soul. But one of the experiences that John talks about in the book is, is going to see Dallas after a season of, of pretty intense frustration in his life not only in terms of his ministry and working with the church and things that he wanted to see happen that weren't happening and, and, and the regular day-to-day -day stuff that he was dealing with, but also a season in his life where he really felt like his marriage was falling apart. The, the, the love and intimacy that he had experienced with his wife early on in his marriage was, was waning and there was, there was not the same spark, there was not the same energy, there was not the same love and, and they both felt like things were just kind of coming apart at the seams. And they were close. They were close to calling it quits. And so John went to see Dallas to talk through this frustration and, and, and everything that he was dealing with in his life. And, and, and as he went from the things that were happening in the church and the things that were happening in his life, it quickly got to the things that were happening in this, in, in this relationship that was so important to John. And John described that, that it, over the course of that very, very painful session... Dallas made him stare in the face of his bitterness and his anger and his sin. And at the end of the session, John said, Dallas did something that no one had ever done for me before. Dallas said, John, I want to pray for you. And Dallas came and sat down next to him and he took his hand and he placed his hand on John's heart and he prayed for him. And John writes in the book that, that is as close as I have ever felt to someone touching my soul. As Dallas placed his hand on, his, on my heart and he prayed that God would remove the anger and the bitterness and the frustration that was poisoning my soul. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to place your hands on the hurts and the brokenness, and the mourning, and the grief, the reality of the world in which we live, to place your hands on those hurts in the world, and to say, God, bring healing. God, bring wholeness. God, as you have given me grace, as you have blessed my life, help me to be, bring blessings here. Help me to respond differently than everyone else in the world may respond. Not with, not with bitterness, not with complaints, not with, with words that seek to undermine, belittle, or demean. But words that instead build up. Even when, and maybe even especially when, the person who receives those words haven't earned them. They don't deserve them. To place your hands on the, on the hurts of the world. And to be a part of the blessing that God is seeking to bring. Now that may sound impossible as you think about that person that wronged you. That person who harmed you that you haven't talked to since. But that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is not an easy way to live. But at the end of the day, 
we believe it is the best way to live. So as we conclude this series, I just want to invite you to a time of prayer. And I'm going to lead you in a time of prayer, a time for you to think about what it means to receive that grace from God and what it means to share that grace from God. And so as we move into a time of prayer, what I want to invite you to do is just to take your hands and to place them on your heart and to bow your heads with me and and allow me, if you will, to to lead you in a time of prayer for God to, to help us understand what our next step may be. Imagine that the hands that are touching your heart are the hands of Jesus. I want to invite you to experience his tenderness and his grace as he leans over and whispers whatever words you need to hear in your ear. Whatever situation you may be in right now, or whatever situation, relationship, circumstance you may still be dealing with, invite you to hear what Jesus would say to that. What Jesus would bring. Allow him to speak to whatever harm you may have caused. giving you courage to maybe take that first step of of restoration, of saying you're sorry, asking God to bring healing there. I want you to imagine placing your hands on the hearts of those who have harmed you, who may not have expressed any regret for that. To pray for wholeness to come there as well. Jesus, we started this journey many weeks ago with the understanding that this all starts with grace. It all starts with an understanding of what you have already done for us long before we deserved it or earned it. It starts with your love revealed to us in your act of sacrifice and in the life that you now offer us. And whatever step we may need to take, Lord, whatever response 
you may call from us at the end of this journey together. We pray that you would fill us with the courage to take it. Whether it's saying, I'm sorry, or saying, I forgive you, or saying to you, I'm ready, whatever it might be, Lord, give us courage to respond. Give us courage, Lord, to follow you. We offer all of these things to you in Jesus' name.